0: Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program with interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists. My name is Brad Swift. Today's interview is with Scott Stevens, an associate professor in the Environmental Science Policy and Management Department of the College of Natural Resources at UC Berkeley. This interview is pre-recorded and edited. We're here with Scott Stevens. And Scott, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. We wanted to ask you about your research in wildfire management and forestry management. And have you described the arc of your research over your career and
1: where you're at now? Well, I started here at Berkeley in 2000. Actually, I was a graduate student here from 91 to 95, so I was a Ph.D. student here. When I came back to Berkeley in 2000, really started to work on kind of looking at the effectiveness of different fuel treatments that can be used to try to reduce fire hazard and maybe reduce the negative impacts of wildfire on forests. So we started a project with a bunch of collaborators all over the United States that were the Fire and Fire Surrogate Study. That study looked at trying to reduce fire hazards in forests that once burned frequently with mechanical methods alone, prescribed fire methods alone combination, mechanical, followed by fire, and then controls. And that study also had a pretty broad suite of ecological variables, including soils and vegetation, insects, economics, some social, fire behavior. So it tried to look at the stand scale, 100 acres, 50 acres. If a manager wants to go in and actually modify vegetation to try to reduce the potential for bad wildfire effects, what ecological similarities or differences might be with all those treatments. So that went on for about five years. We have a research forest at Berkeley called UC Blogic Forest, which is up near Georgetown. The campus got that donated to them in 1933, so it's a fantastic place to do research. We did that work um, in kind of with a bunch of other people in different states, even. This was a national study that included about 13 states, each of us kind of doing a similar exercise. So we went through that, funded by the U.S. Joint Fire Sciences Program. More recent research has moved away from kind of the stand level, trying to go to more landscape level. So what happens when you actually think about reintroducing fire into landscapes that have had fire exclusion for maybe a century, and then maybe do that repeatedly over an area and look at the patterns of burning, the severity, mortality patterns.
0: What's the size difference between landscape and stand?
1: That's a great point. And the stands, I think, are on the order of 20, 50, 100 acres or so. And the landscape work we're doing now is much, much larger. It's 5,000, maybe to 25,000 acres. So really, really watersheds or pieces of watersheds and sometimes even small watersheds inside a large, so really much, much larger, kind of a more of a functional unit where people might work in terms of planning at a landscape scale. Further work down the road now is kind of changed a little bit also into fire policy. That was something I've always been interested in, trying to understand how science actually interact with policy, how a policy is formed, trying to maybe look at some objectivity in some of the fire science research that could maybe help inform policy, not really shape it completely, but inform it. Most recently, we've worked with Australians on the policy of urban interface fire areas. So this has been an interesting um, kind of partnership because Australia and us have a lot of similarities in fire policy and the urban interface and also some real market differences and probably the, maybe the, the final area is trying to understand, um, dynamics also in shrubland. So we've actually moved away from the forest and moved into some shrubland systems, chaparral, trying to understand kind of the dynamics of fire and how you might modify fire behavior in, um, chaparral systems, which are really, really different than, um, say, um, forests. So we continue, I've got a great group of graduate students in my lab and, um, all those folks have done great work. So it's a, it's kind of a group effort.
0: And the research proposals that you write, are you responding to requests from the field, so to speak, or are you driving some of the subject matter?
1: Well, what's happened in my program, there's a program called the U.S. Joint Fire Sciences Program, which is funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the U.S. Department of Interior. And they put out a call for proposals every year in the fall. They just came out here recently. And they actually put on their website the areas they're most interested in So most of my research proposals is when I look at those calls, I look at the USDA, look at maybe another competitive uh, research grant proposal system, look what's being proposed and then see how that melds with the interest I've had maybe in the last few years and trying to say, oh, there's an opportunity, we can do something, Um, let's go ahead. It's interesting, one thing that's happened is the um, success rate on the proposals has gone way down in terms of percentage. Um but this started around ninety-seven-98, the percentage of successful proposals may be about forty percent. Most recently it's going between ten and fifteen. So it has gotten more competitive to get the um, the research proposals funded.
0: Is there a general consensus within the research community, uh fire, wildfire management community, on what the best practices are, where the research should be going?
1: Well that there is, I think, a lot of consensus with some debate. Um What's happened in the Joint Fire Sciences Program, which I think has happened to many research programs in the United States that I'm aware of, is calls used to be a little bit more broad in terms of what they were asking for, kind of more of a broad question. And then maybe you could come up with many different ideas that might fit that question. And I've seen more and more that the questions seem to be getting more and more narrow. And I think in some cases, they're probably tied to um, you know entities such as um, organizations that need information they think is really, really important. Um Maybe also just evolution of science where more is certainly known. There's probably questions are getting maybe more focused. In some ways, I think that's a lost opportunity because it it allows certainly you to look at what's being proposed and see if you fit it, but it also doesn't allow maybe the more general research to happen that maybe isn't tied to an exact objective. You know, I, I know NSF, National Science Foundation, does that better where you're able to put in a proposal that may meet that objective but also doesn't have to really directly be on, right on top of it for a short term. It, particularly in the fire science research community, we're talking about both Australia, Europe and the United States, more and more research is actually being targeted to questions that managers have on a time scale of probably less than 5 years.
0: What do you see as the time frame that you would need to have for having an impact on a large forest ecosystem?
1: Well, I think time frame for a large one is, is going to be decades, and, and then continuous. Um, places that we've worked at where fire has been reintroduced, say Yosemite National Park since about 1974, um, lightning fire, Illawit Creek Basin has been allowed to burn kind of unabated with a little bit of suppression for the last 35 years or so. And it really took decades for that place to be sculpted by fire once again. Is before 74 fire was excluded in Yosemite really for a hundred years totally So when fire gets back in those systems and seeing the patterns that we see today for some papers with Brandon Collins and others it really has started to really have an incredible impact dynamic on that forest but it took you know 20 30 years or so and then when we do things on the other side mechanically where we try to maybe reduce fire hazards with mechanical means thinning chipping things of that nature, there, I think, it's similar time frame. You're talking about decades because the project sizes are so large, and one of the big challenges is so much area that really does need some treatment for both fire and also restoration versus what is able to be done annually, and that's really a huge disconnect. What can be done is a tiny drop, in some ways, connected to what really needs to be done. So I think it, they all say that it's going to be a long-term view, decades and decades, and once you kind of get into that philosophy of management, you're changing, you're learning. Since forests never are static, they're always changing. Essentially, that means the manager is going to be basically doing things continuously forever.
0: But to put in perspective the idea of forest management and fire abatement, was it about 100 years ago that
1: the, the process of trying to put fires out began? It sure was. It was really about 1905 is when the Forest Service was created by Congress. And when the Forest Service was created, they really had a few really critical missions put out by the, um, the Congress and also from the President. One was to try to safeguard the timber resources for the nation and try to actually create a t- continuous supply of timber The other was actually to create continuous and good quality water supplies. So even back in 1905, they were talking about water. There was actually an active debate in the early 1900s whether or not fire was seen as a menace or possibly could it be used as a tool. The debate went on for several years. In fact, California was a big part of that debate, in particular private landowners of forest around Lake Almanor and other places. After a a little bit of debate, some study, it was decided that fire was the enemy both from a water standpoint, timber standpoint, and rather early 1900s, 1910, 1905, we really have a national fire suppression policy that happens in the western U.S. The southeast United States continues to debate longer. They have a much, I think, longer kind of connection to fire on land based on just immigrants and other things down there, and they basically didn't really, take the Western line for a long time. But around 1905, we really do see an active fire suppression system and things like federal dollars from Congress actually having to be procured to states only if they actually adopted policy.
0: That's what's built up this incredible amount of fuel and density of forest in North America that has created a real hazard for wildfire. But then you were saying... That in the past 20 or 30 years, that's been rethought, and now fire is allowed in areas, and there's active management to try to remove fuel, and that you're starting to see the effects of that?
1: Berkeley actually has quite a history in this. There was a professor, Harold Biswell. Biswell came here in 1947, and he retired about 1972. So he was one of the earliest that basically started to ask those exact questions, is fire always the enemy? Can we use it actually for some purposes that actually would make sense? Do we always want to exclude it? You know, so Harold had his career really during that time when there was massive debate and also a massive bias to fire being always the enemy. He had a thick skin. He, um, he was basically um, beat up in political settings from comments and written comments, but he persisted and um, did a marvelous job. And it has changed. It has changed, but it's been slow. It's been really slow. Most areas in California, since we're in a Mediterranean climate, really did have fire at really, really short intervals in the past, say maybe 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. So we have a lot of places that used to burn with a lot of frequency, and it's very, very common. Grasslands, you know, um, woodlands, the savannah woodlands, oak woodlands, many of the forests, mixed conifer, ponderosa pine, even wetlands for Native American burning. So there was a Great area of California that used to burn, very, very common. And then there are other places in California, high elevation forests, alpine environments, deserts like the Mojave Desert, where fire, we think, was actually a pretty minor factor, maybe once in a while, but maybe on the century scale. So we really had the gamut here. We had some that burned very, very frequently and others that had very, very little fire. And as you alluded to, the places that used to burn frequently, you take fire out for 100 years. Those are the places that have changed. And it's also past management, such as harvesting, the way we've harvested forest, partially cut forests and left a lot of fuel in the ground. That has also had a profound impact.
0: And so is there, within the community, a bit of debate really just around the edges of the issue, or are there some people that really have very different takes on, on how management should be done?
1: You know, there are there are both. There are absolutely both. Um, there are some. There's a debate going on in California right now about high-severity fire. So the high-severity simply means that you kill the majority of the overstory. So in a forest, you're killing maybe 75% of the overstory or more. So the fire that causes great change. And interestingly, some people would um, argue that maybe there's too much high-severity fire in California because of the fuel buildup and the other things we alluded to. Others actually may argue that they're sufficient or there's actually a deficit, that high-severity fire working on our forest is not a bad thing, and it actually something that maybe some people argue is in a low number. Science tries to come in and help inform that debate, and it's not easy because we don't have a lot of good data to understand what high-severity fire really did in most of our forests in California. We have a few places um, one is at Iluet Basin in Yosemite that's been working at least for the last 35 years with unabated fire. In there, Brandon Collins led a, some work at high-severity fire, at least in the last couple of decades, right around 15% of the landscape. So about 15% of it burning when it burns very frequently, every 10 years, every 15 years, is really killing the majority of trees, but at what spatial scale? That's another good question. It's just not how much percent is, but how is it distributed? So the high severity fire there, most patches are less than, say, five acres in size, with many on the order of one acre in size. And then there's a few, a few out there, maybe 200 acres, very few. Um, So the distribution of severity on that landscape is also incredibly important. And there's no doubt that when you look at some of our contemporary wildfires, like the Moonlight Fire and some others in California we've had in the last um, decade or so, that the patches of high severity can be a 1,000 acres can be maybe even a little larger. And the patches down in that one-acre realm are almost insignificant. They just don't exist. So that's one area it's a great debate. The other great debate really is whether or not when Forest Service goes into federal land and tries to reduce fire hazard, should they really just focus on fire hazards alone and then try to work with those? Or do they also add in maybe a commercial tree harvest that can supplement the cost of that maybe make it then available over larger land bases versus just getting money from Congress to do it. So that's another real, real debate is whether or not federal lands in California of the Forest Service, should they actually have an objective that may be a second-tier objective? The fire objective maybe be number one, but then maybe the second objective is also removing some green timber that could help pay for the treatments on the ground. That's a That's a fierce debate.
0: And how does that fit into the roads-no-roads no roads debate as well?
1: That's a good question, because the road, no road to me is also another one that's exactly connected to it, because some would argue that we need these roads to access these forests to then somehow do a treatment to then reduce their hazard. My answer to that is somewhat is that there are so many eroded acres in California, millions and millions and millions of acres that are eroded already, and many of those millions, a vast majority, probably 90% of them need treatment. So... I think where the roads are, yes, you think about maybe some of those treatments like mechanical, prescribed burning, chipping, makes a lot of sense. But I can't imagine myself saying we need to road areas that are unroaded so then we can do the mechanical work when we have such a base already that needs to be worked and we can't even touch it. I think the unroaded areas, if they're remote, we should basically allow more managed wildfire to work those landscapes.
0: are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. In your research, are you actively seeking out new technologies and capabilities to extend your understanding of of what's going on in the forest?
1: We do use a lot of different technologies to try to help us understand the forest. And one is spatial data. So the idea of getting data over large areas, like we alluded to, maybe a 15,000-acre area. You know, that's a big area, 20,000 acres. It's just impossible to go out there and do some sort of field sampling that you're going to be able to get some information over such an extent. But you can go out, certainly, and do some field sampling with a stratification, maybe based on forest type or aspect or slope, and then use things like a geographic information system or remotely sensed data from satellites in space than to try to use your field data and combine it with the remotely sensed data and actually create a map, like a spatial map of the area you're interested in. Uh, So that spatial data, you know, the remote sensing technology to work on spatial data is just critical, critically important. And even the technology of just instruments we use in the field nowadays to measure things like heights, diameters, um, reflectance of vegetation, things of that nature. All that is just incredibly useful. So the technology continues to help us try to make um, assessments at broad scales and also try to answer questions sometimes that aren't easy. Are you using uh, quantitative modeling
0: to some extent?
1: We sure do. The models are just critical. In some ways, the fire models are ahead of things like ecosystem models. You know, fire is really a physical process. It really is about combustion, oxidation. Uh, Fire modeling really began in earnest in this country in the early 70s, mostly in Missoula, Montana and has certainly been able to kind of change over time and work continues to try to make it better. But the fire models we have today actually do a pretty good job, not a perfect job, but a pretty good job of actually forecasting on a GIS landscape where fire is going to move in a landscape, how fast is it going to move, maybe what kind of flame lengths might you expect. So that those modeling systems are really used a great deal in our research to try to understand the probability of fire occurrence. What happens to that probability, let's say, if you treat 20% of the watershed and reduce the hazard? What happens to the probability of the areas that are treated? What about the 80% that are untreated? It turns out they can also have a reduction in probability. The ecosystem models are so much more challenging. Then you're asking, what happens to soil? What happens to water? What happens to wildlife habitat? So those become much more challenging to basically um, generate and also test. So the fire modeling, in some ways, is well ahead of those because I think it's more of a physical known system. Even though there's great research to try to make it better, but the fire models we have today are pretty good.
0: And then there's also the idea that the forests in the equatorial area are much more valuable
1: mm-hmm.
0: than the the forests north and south of that area. Yeah. What what sort of feeling do you have about that?
1: Well, I think that's right, in, in and that in the carbon debate, that's a really interesting um, separation because. People have shown really conclusively that you know removing forests in the equator area is a dramatic reduction in carbon sequestration. Also, the sustainability of those forests. So I think the carbon question when we look at the equator is really clear about trying to keep forest forest keep forests alive, right? Keep that forest there and let it allow it to sequester carbon, hold it. But then when we move away from the kind of the equator, we go up into places that are more temperate like California, here we have fire that works on landscapes. Fire works on landscapes. It's done in the past. It continues today. Fire is different, but it's still a big issue. So there, I think the debate becomes not just trying to keep forested forested, but also what kind of forests have the ability to hold on to carbon and sequester it for the long term. And then you go to the boreal, and my goodness, the boreal forest have now been shown like in northern Canada and Russia some of the biggest carbon stocks in the planet. These are huge, enormous areas. And actually, we know this year, Russia had one of the biggest fire years in its history. So talk about you know the context of fire and climate. It's just profound. And fire and forest in Boreal is going to be the most sensitive to climate change. People have already forecasted that. I think it's already been seen. Temperatures are up even more severely in the Boreal regions versus down here in the Temperate. So those places are probably even more important to understand in terms of the dynamics of carbon and fire and forest, than even we are.
0: Uh, so how did you get started in mm-hmm. science? What was it that, that got you interested in becoming a scientist?
1: That's a great question. It's one that's hard to answer. I mean, my um, background has always been kind of curious about scientific things. I actually had my undergrad degree and master's degree in engineering. I grew up really in a forestry family. My grandfather, my, my dad and uncles working around forests, but I think for me, being so close to it for a while, not for my whole life, but for my young childhood life, it was so close, and I really enjoyed it, but it was also something that I took for granted, right? I just didn't think it was something I wanted to study and pursue, and somehow I was interested in kind of technology and engineering, so I got into the engineering field. Then I started to actually just contemplate doing a PhD, and then just realized with discussions with my wife, Mary, and others that I was so much more interested in the natural world. So... Once I started to actually study that, which actually happened at UC Davis in 1988, it just lit a fire. I mean, I didn't, at that time I wasn't really going to study fire, but it lit a fire in me just a curiosity. This idea of um, natural systems, um, soils, uh, plants. I'd never studied any of that in my uh, previous career. It just was just fascinating to me. Then I just decided, um, I thought I'd come down and meet a couple faculty here at Berkeley at the time, Bob Martin. Um, learned that he actually had a BS degree in physics, so in some ways we had some similarities, and then just realized that kind of the quantitative engineering world had some real connections to the natural sciences, and it was really where my heart was. There's no doubt about it. Great. Well, thanks very much. You're welcome.
0: Special thanks to Gretchen Sanderson for editorial assistance. The music heard during the show is from a Lostana David album entitled Folk and Acoustic. It's made available via a Creative Commons License 3.0 Attribution. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. We're happy to hear from our listeners. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.calex at yahoo.com.